Glad you're here this morning. I, uh, over the course of this sermon, probably toward the end, I'll share some personal thoughts with you from the point of view of a shepherd, but I, I want to uh, just begin this morning by uh, recognizing that y'all bring different things to our corporate worship time this morning. I, uh, just trying to be in tune with where people are, recognizing that people come with different um, issues. Some of you may have some physical issues, some sickness issues, or you may have a friend or a relative who's uh, suffering. We, many of us know the Shireys, for example, and other people like that that are just going through a difficult time. So we bring those burdens here on Sunday mornings. Some of you, y'all might be working through some financial issues. You may have a job where you kind of see the writing on the wall. Or maybe you have a job where your boss is throwing it in your face. Either you do this or you're canned. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you're wrestling with marital issues. Parent issues. Kid issues. So many things that I realize that we bring on a Sunday morning, and I, I want to encourage you with the realization or what I've recognized that I need to encourage you on this morning first is that the goods for what you're bringing are here. Whatever you bring, they're here every single week. It never ceases to amaze me what the Lord does with, with a sermon each week and one passage and one preacher and a Holy Spirit that engages every single person wherever they are, if they're just attentive. We're in a unique time as a people, really, as a society right now, a time of real distractedness. I'll engage that later, but this morning, my prayer as I begin this morning, and I'm going to pray, is let me pray for an attentiveness. We can just engage, recognize the words of life are right here. Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for Luke Panter, and I want to pray for Emily. Lord, I'm thankful for their marriage, thankful for the man that Luke is, and a man of faith. Lord, I pray that his marriage is blessed, and uh, that he is growing as a shepherd, that he is dying for his wife daily, that his wife is following Luke's leadership, and Lord, I pray that Luke and Emily are putting, on the, putting the gospel on display in the way they love each other. Lord, I pray for their church there in uh, Quinlan. Just pray for uh, Luke's ministry, that it is um, rich and blessed and that it's really out of an overflow of the time that he's spending with you. I pray that he is weakly undone and rebuilt and refitted and refueled with hope and gospel and truth and worship and wonder and that that somehow feeds enough for the next week. I pray that you'll keep him encouraged pray that you'll guard him from despair. I pray that his people will give him glimpses of the journey that you are on in their lives that will encourage him. And Lord, I pray also that he won't have to have that encouragement, that he'll preach the word in season and out. Lord, I pray that their church there, the other churches in Quinlan, the churches between here and there, the churches in Greenville and Lone Oak and Commerce in every direction, Royce City. 
Lord, I pray that we are all on the same team cheering for each other, begging for your glory and greatness through these churches. And Lord, guard our hearts from competition. Please forgive us in the ways we have secretly celebrated the difficulties in another church. Lord, we pray for great things among the people of God in this area. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you will teach us to pray. I pray that we're attentive. I pray that all these difficulties that we bring to the table this morning, that you will minister to every single hurt and every single joy, every single uh, heart this morning. Just pray that we'll walk away changed and that you'll see a people that are attentive in a weird time of distractedness. We love you, Lord, and we turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 14. <clears throat> I want to read a passage before we climb into John chapter 14. It's sort of an intro. In Luke chapter 11, you don't need to turn there. It's just giving you a reference. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And the Lord taught them to pray. I want to begin there this morning because I just, I'm constantly needing to re-engage the, the thought that these were fishermen and tax collectors. That these were just commoners, just regular people that were following Jesus. And now we don't know which one it was that asked Jesus teach us to pray. We might speculate and imagine. But it was likely a common man asking for an uncommon blessing. And I hope this morning that we can be especially common and that we can, whether this was a fisherman or a tax collector or whether we work at L3 or Rubbermaid, that we can come with that heart this morning saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to be about something that matters. Quicken us to the gravity of prayer. We're in John chapter 14. We've been in a passage that's really sort of difficult, really difficult to engage, especially verses 12 through 14. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 13 and 14, but I'll read them for the sake of context. Verse 12 of John chapter 14. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you really are paying attention to verses 12 and 13, this passage we've engaged these last few weeks, you realize this is a, that's a shocking promise that you will do these sort of things in greater. And this promise that he gives us in verses 13 and 14 is another shocking promise. That whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. The shocking promise that really comes true as you look at the rest of the story, you look in the book of Acts at the early church, you look just weeks later, Pentecost is seven weeks after Christ is crucified. Seven weeks later, Onward, you see the, really the birth of the Christian church and you see it saturated with greatness and saturated with prayer 
in the name of Jesus, just like he promised. This morning, I want to do a couple things. First, I want to look at this picture of prayer in this context of John chapter 14. I want to look at two devotional truths, and I'm saying they are devotional truths. And then we're going to look at the real meat of what's being exposed here. But the devotional truths first. First, I want to show you that prayer goes with a troubled heart. While we've really taken months to unpack John chapter 14, this really unfolded in moments. It's taken us months so we can somehow get disconnected from really the context, but I want to take you back to the context of how this story unfolds. In John chapter 14, these are the last hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's sitting, at, sitting down with his disciples in really the last primary teaching moment. And this begins in John chapter 14. At the end of the Lord's Supper, these guys are troubled. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then he goes really through the next few verses explaining why you need to believe in him also because he's God. And how he's the only way to the Father. There's no other way. And then he says, if you've known me, you've known the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then ordinary Phil says, just show us the Father. Like, hello. He's explaining what he said in this verse. Verse, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then in verse 12 and 13, he takes them to greatness. You're going to do great works and even greater than I've done. And then in verse 13, he says, now pray. The connection I want you to see is the connection between a troubled heart and believing and prayer. We've got to take in the trouble of this moment. These guys have cast their lot with this Jesus. Three years earlier, they left their fishing boats. They left their tax collecting booths. They left their family and their friends. And they cast everything with Christ. And it looked like it was a good bet. Because the way the thing is shaping up, just a few days before this, all of Jerusalem is hailing his entry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Waving palm branches as he enters Jerusalem. The disciples, they've already picked out their robes. I'm going to wear velvet. I'm going to wear, you know, Peter's going to wear wranglers. Jeans. I know where I'm going to sit in the court. But here in this night at the Lord's Supper, things are beginning to come unraveled. For one of them leaves the table as a betrayer. And then Jesus is developing this picture that where I'm going someplace where you guys can't go. So their hearts are desperately troubled. And he says, now, you know what? I know you're troubled, but I don't want you to live there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And then moments later, he says, pray. Although these realities are months apart for us, they're moments apart for for them, and he's connecting trouble with belief and prayer. And then you know what? They follow through with this. Acts chapter 1. You can look in there with me. They follow through with trouble and prayer. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. This is after the resurrection. This is after Christ has appeared to them. This is weeks after this night where he's speaking with them, encouraging them to pray. And in verse 12, he's already ascended now. And in verse 12, he says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. They just watched their Lord ascend into the heavens. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James, the same dudes that are hearing these words seven or eight weeks earlier. Seven. The same guys are doing this in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And they weren't by themselves either. They were together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. After the ascension, this has got to be a troubling moment. You have to appreciate that. You just saw somebody ascend into heaven. You saw somebody crucified, first of all. And then you saw them raised from the dead. And then you ate some fish with them. And then you poked your finger in their side and in their wrist. And then a few weeks later, they're ascending into heaven. This has got to be a troubling moment. The Holy Spirit isn't there yet to help sort out what they've seen. And what are they doing? They are devoting themselves to prayer. They're engaging what he said. He's connected a troubled heart with belief and prayer. And they're doing this very thing right here. Look over in Acts chapter 6. We don't know how much later this was, but it wasn't long. Still the same guys. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's trouble. The Hellenists are upset because they're not getting the goods that the Jews are getting. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this, to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The same guys who were sitting at that table that night, who had troubled hearts, who are being encouraged by their Lord to not stay troubled, who are being encouraged to believe and are being encouraged to pray, are now doing that very thing. And in fact, they're making it easier to do that thing by appointing deacons. Deacons, you tend with the trouble because we're going to go pray about it. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer. Now turn to James chapter 5. <clears throat> I mentioned in the passage that I read first, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, that it was not just the disciples there, but it was also Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it was also the brothers were there. One of those brothers would have been the brother James, the same man who has written this book right here, the book of James. Look in this passage, chapter 5, verse 13. This man who watched Jesus live and die rise again, and then ascend into the heavens. This man who was certainly troubled as he saw this whole thing unfold. This man is going to teach us on prayer. Listen to what he says. Verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The thing I want you to see from this guy, the brother of Jesus, the man that in this case that we're engaging, he's going to teach us on prayer. He's showing us three things. First of all, he's showing us, are you suffering? Then you go pray. Are you troubled over anything? Are you physically suffering? Are you suffering over a job situation? You go pray. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is are you sick? If you're sick, call for the elders to come pray. And then later on in the passage there in verse 16, he says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. He's covered the whole community of faith there. Are you suffering? Pray for yourself. Are you sick? Call for the elders to pray for you. Are you dealing with guilt due to sin? Confess that to one another and pray for one another. This little community that he's teaching right here, he's saying pray. The whole community is saturated with prayer. The picture here is that the men who heard those words that night, and in this case, James, who watched this Jesus live and die and ascend, they're all saying saturate your lives with prayer. Devote your lives to prayer, whether it's trouble or whether it's suffering or whether it's sickness or whether it's sin. Is anybody not touched in those things? Anybody leaving unscathed? Does anybody have no problem with sin? Anybody? He's saying saturate each of those things with prayer. You can understand how Paul would teach the Thessalonians, say, pray without ceasing. How could we stop? How could we stop giving that we are to pray when we have trouble? We are to pray when we are suffering. We are to pray when we are sick. And we are to pray when we are dealing with sin and dealing with guilt. Prayer is to saturate the lives of the people of God. And I want to confess to you that I fear that we are far too underprayed. I fear that I am far too underprayed. Can we possibly be praying as this picture is exposing? I fear that the devil must laugh at a prayerless people. I fear that Satan must laugh at prayerless shepherds who are trying to lead their families apart from talking to the God that made that family. I fear that the devil must laugh at prayerless elders and preachers, prayerless churches. Prayer must go to a troubled heart. Prayer must minister to a suffering heart. Prayer must minister to a sick heart. And prayer must minister to the guilty heart. Our lives are to be saturated with prayer. The second thing I want you to see in this passage, that's the first neighbor. It's months away for us, only moments away for, for the Lord as he shared these words that trouble goes with prayer. The second thing I want you to see is right next to it. It's the passage that we read this morning, that greatness goes with prayer. Greatness goes with prayer. We just read the passage in verse 12. That you will do as great things as I have done and even greater things. And then he begins to talk about prayer. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is a passage that we engaged last week. 
This is the account where the man was paralyzed and needed to get in to see Jesus. And they called for Bud and Jeff to knock a hole in the ceiling. If you have the English Standard Version, then you can look at this beautiful picture with me. On this page, you can probably even see it if you don't have the English Standard Version. But in the English Standard, you can see exactly what I'm looking at. On the right side of the page is Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 5 is about midway down on the left where it says Jesus heals a paralytic. We read the story last week. I'm not going to read the story again. But I want you to look over on the left page. This is just one page before. Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. Jesus heals many. That's the next heading. Jesus preaches in synagogues. Jesus calls the first disciples. And Jesus cleanses a leper. Now let me read that account of Jesus cleansing the leper. And I want you to see great works associated with prayer. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And then there's the account of the paralytic that's lowered through the roof and his sins are forgiven and he's healed. What I want you to see is that this is like this big Dagwood sandwich of great works right here. And that meat that's right at the center of the whole thing is prayer. That our Lord is praying these amazing things that are happening. You can look at pages before and pages after these amazing works that are taking place. That prayer is right in the middle of them. Prayer is saturated in the middle of these great works. Could they have possibly happened without prayer? John chapter 6 is a passage we looked at last week. I'll just share with you briefly what takes place there. The Lord feeds the multitudes. And after the multitudes, if you take the Gospels and you sort of synthesize them, you can appreciate what happens after he feeds these multitudes. In one account, in the Matthew account, it says immediately after he fed them, he told the disciples to get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you on the other side. No explanation. There's no dynamics there. But in John 6, we find find out exactly what happened. These guys wanted to make him king. He fed, he fed them, and they wanted to make him king right then and there. And it looks like the disciples were part, part of this. Yeah, let's do this, man. It's time. We've cast our lot with you, and look, the crowds want to make you king. It's on. Let's go ahead and make you king. And Jesus sent them away at that point, sent the crowds away, and he sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And what did he do? He went up to the hillside to pray. In between, like the Dagwood sandwich of feeding the multitudes and walking on the water and pray and preaching the next day about being the bread of life, right in the middle of that is prayer. Prayer goes with greatness. All through the Gospels and all through the book of Acts, there's greatness all over the place, but saturated in those settings is prayer. There's prayer between sermons. There's prayer between great works. There's prayer between miracles. Prayer between rebukes. There's prayer between sermons. There's prayers between, between teachable moments. And ultimately, how did the Lord spend his night before he went to the cross, the greatest work this world has ever known? In prayer. Turn back to James 5. I want to show you something that 
we didn't look at because I wanted you to see this after we engaged greatness going with prayer. Remember, we're hearing from the brother of our Lord, a man who watched him live and die and rise again and watched him ascend to the Father's right hand. He's taught us on prayer. Pray when you're suffering. Pray when you're sick. Pray when you're sinful. And then in verse 17, he encourages them with an illustration. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, guess what? It did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. James has just been teaching them on prayer and he doesn't take them to this weird, unhuman example. He takes him to a guy that's done some amazing works, but he appeals to the reality that this guy is just as human as you and me. With a nature just like yours and mine. With the potential to be just as distracted as you and I might be right now. He says, man, this guy's praying for greatness. And you know what he prayed? And here came a three-year drought. And he prayed again and he sent his servant up to go look over the hill. And he prayed and nothing happened. He prayed and nothing happened. He sent his servant back seven times. And his servant looks out there and he sees a fist-sized cloud that turns into a storm that eventually brings rain. Greatness from a man that's just like us. Man, I'm telling you, as I'm considering just devotionally, that greatness goes with prayer. Great works are right there as a neighbor to prayer in this conversation, contextually. I'm considering, man, that I want greatness in so many respects. I want greatness as a, as, as a husband because of what this illustrates, this relationship between me and my wife. Because it puts the gospel on display. I want greatness for that reason. I want greatness as a father because I want to give a legacy to those three. A legacy of faith and worship and wonder. I want greatness as a preacher. And I have to guard myself that it's not for my own glory. But I want greatness as a preacher because of the message that I'm supposed to be a herald of. And I want greatness for this church. I don't want this to be an average church. And I'm not even comparing it horizontally to other churches. I'm comparing it to this. I'm looking at this, and I, want to, I don't want to see a Corinthian letter to us. I want to see an Ephesian letter to us. Or a Thessalonians letter to, letter, to, letter to us saying, go, boy. Enjoy him out loud. Be faithful. Be great. Because of the gospel that we bear. I want greatness. And when I consider this, I have to realize that we will never see greatness as a husband, as a father, as an elder, as a preacher, as a church, as a shepherd in your family without prayer. They go together. You can't have one without the other. Now I want to take you to the central truth in our passage. Prayer goes with a troubled heart. Prayer goes with greatness. And the central teaching here that really helps us understand this passage is that prayer goes through Jesus. The prayer goes in his name. It's the key to understanding this promise that he's given us. Because otherwise we could look at it and just say, this is a license to pray for whatever I want. It's like this divine formula where I want a new car. Bam, I pray in his name. There it is. I want a bigger house. Bam, I pray in his name. There it is. That's not some formula to get whatever you want. 
The way to understand this passage is that phrase, in his name. He says it twice, I think, because we need to get it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I was thinking about a way to understand this, a key to understanding what's going on here, understanding what it means when you pray in his name. It's sort of like divine name dropping. Thinking of an example with Jeff Wade, just uh, I hadn't prepared Jeff for this. He's got his head down and he's wondering, oh goodness, what are you getting me into? I'm actually going to give you an illustration with L3 and Jeff Wade. And I want you to think of L3 as God for a minute and Jeff Wade as Jesus for a minute. I know that every illustration breaks down, and this one is broken down early on, even before I really present it. (laughs) But just for the sake of understanding what's taking place here, I want you to appreciate the dynamics. I want you to see what's going on. Many of you are often looking for work, and I can't tell you how often I'm giving a resume to somebody at L3, or somebody at L3 is getting a resume from somebody who wants to get hired on at L3. Just imagine for a moment that you want to be hired on at L3, we're like, oh man, it's on. We got you covered because we know Jeff Wade. Jeff Wade's the man over at L3. And if anybody needs to get hired on at L3, Jeff Wade is the guy to talk to. We're like, hey, bro, and we're talking to L3. You just don't even know how well we know Jeff Wade. Man, do we even need to interview? Or do you just want to go ahead and tell me where to show up and where to put my things? This picture of divine name dropping. If we can look at it sort of jokingly, now we can engage it realistically. In the case of our prayers, we have an ear with God the Father because we know God the Son. We can't even come to God the Father but through the Son. He's already told us that in John 14. This has got to modify how you pray. You've got to appreciate that it's in essence what you're doing is you're funneling your prayers through Jesus while we're talking directly to the Father because of what the Son has done. When we pray in his name, it's as if he's praying it for us. It's as if he's relaying the message. It's as if he's representing what we want to say. Like when we submit our resume to L3, Jeff Wade is vouching for us. He's saying he's legit. He's solid. He can drop my name. Given this, can you say what you say and request what you request in prayer, knowing that Jesus is representing this to the Father? Can we still pray for some of the things that we often pray for? Two things I want to deal with. First is I think we have to pray reverently when we pray in his name. It's got to modify how we pray, recognizing what goes with his name. If his name is attached to our prayers, we've got to understand what his name means. Turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to take you on a really short journey. We're going to come back to Jeff and L3 in a little bit. Just a really short or really quick journey through the book of John. I want to show you some snapshots of some things that are associated with the name of Jesus. This got to modify how you pray. Look, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
To all who received him who believed in his name. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. There's belief associated with his name. Turn to John chapter 14. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Who's speaking there? Jesus is speaking. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Look at John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is a remarkable connection here between abiding eternal fruit and prayer in the name of Jesus. And if you're really paying attention to, all of this is by appointment. If you want to know the role that God plays in your doing, he has appointed them to bear fruit that comes from prayer in his name. Chapter 15, verse 21. But all these things, all these things, he's speaking back of hatred where the world hates you, persecution where you are persecuted, all these things they will do on account of my name. Later in John chapter 20, John, the writer of the book of John, connects life in his name. So, so far, just from a sampling, we've got belief associated with his name. We've got the Holy Spirit being sent to earth in conjunction with his name. We've got abiding eternal fruit that goes with his name. And we've got suffering in his name. We've got life in his name. In Revelation, Jesus writes to the churches in in Pergamum. Or he doesn't write, John writes. He tells the church in Pergamum. He tells them that they are to hold fast to his name. And then he tells the Philadelphian church. He says that his name is something that should not be denied. And he even says that, guess what? My name will be inscribed on you. This thing, this thing that we tag on the end of our prayer, do we really have an appreciation of the gravity of what his name represents? Of what goes along with his name? Belief, the Holy Spirit, abiding eternal fruit, suffering, life. It's something to hold fast to. It's something that will be inscribed on his people. Given the gravity of his name, we have to have a reverence for it that's got to temper the request and the content of our prayer lives. It's got to modify how we pray. Asking in his name limits what we can rightly ask. In light of belief, spirit, abiding eternal fruit, suffering, life, something to hold fast to, and an inscription actually on his people, can we pray for a car in his name? Can we pray for a bigger house in his name? Can we even consistently pray for flowery beds of ease? In his name, he even says suffering is associated with my name. Given what goes on with his name, can we possibly ask so lightly? Can our prayers be so inundated with temporal issues in light of the gravity of his name? Shouldn't our prayers change and take on a different weight? Maybe we'll say less. But maybe it will have some sort of eternal trajectory. 
Maybe there will be prayers that have some meat to them that are in keeping with what his name represents. We must consider what his name is associated with when we pray in his name. As we ask, we're realizing that our prayers are in keeping with who he is and his character. So we're careful in our prayers and we don't use his name lightly. We don't tag it on the end of a prayer and hope it validates a weak engagement of eternal issues and an aggressive engagement of temporal issues. It does not somehow validate weak prayer. Whenever those disciples, the passage that I mentioned as we began this morning, when those disciples asked him, teach us to pray, or one of those disciples, he taught them and he began, hallowed be thy name, our Father in heaven. That phrase, hallowed be thy name, would be like to holify your name. He's requesting from the Father, Father, holify your name. Father, give your people a reverence for your name, that they will see the weight of of your name. He's teaching his disciples to pray, and before he even asks for food, he says, Father, holify your name among your people so that they see the gravity of your name. May he holify the Son's name as we pray in his name, and we ask in keeping with who he is and in keeping with his character. It's not a formula to get whatever you want. Second thing is that we pray wholeheartedly when we pray in his name. Let's go back to that illustration with Jeff and L3. If Jeff and our relationship with Jeff earns us an ear with L3 Human Resources Department, how inappropriate would it be for us to go in there with our cell phone, texting or calling our girlfriend when we're in the middle of an interview? What would that tell the person that you're sitting with? It would tell them, ah, oh, they're divided. They're not really interested in this. And what would it do to his name? It would cast disparity on Jeff Wade. It would throw him under the bus because he's vouched for you. So what is it when we, the people of God, come to God the Father in the name of Jesus, but we're divided and distracted, and we're thinking about so many other things, and our hearts are really far from him? I want you to consider the next verse in this passage in John chapter 14, verse 15. It goes like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's speaking about prayer and how you are to pray in his name. And then he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We are to be all there in praying in his name. It's not just an issue of being attentive. It's an issue of not being double-minded or double-hearted. It would be like coming with your cell phone in one hand and your resume in the other. It's coming with sin in one hand and some effort at sincerity in the other to the living God. There's no room for harboring sin when we come to God and being double-minded and double-hearted. Praying in His name in a prayer that rocks people's worlds, that shocks this world, is prayed by a man or woman who's on the journey of lordship where all he is and all he's called you to be is represented in your prayer. That is the prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. 
That's how it availeth much, is because he's, he or she's not coming divided. To ask for deliverance from something while serving other gods is the ugliest form of mockery, and we know that our God will not be mocked. I fear that we are too busy to pray in his name. Think about it. Are we too distracted? Are we too busy? Is it too much going on on our schedules to come to him undivided? To come to him wholeheartedly? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's the last passage I'm going to show you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4. These are from a man that also sat there on that night who heard those words from the Lord that whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This man heard those words, and here's what he says to us in chapter 4 of verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled is a great picture for us in 2009 as we're all running 85 and 90 miles an hour trying to get it all done. Self-controlled says that we say no to some things so that we can be engaged in some things that really matter. It means that we recognize what are we about? What, what matters to us? What do we have to get, get done? And what are the negotiables? Are the eternal issues negotiables? Then maybe we're all about this busy thing and this busy 85-mile-an-hour life, and we're not living self-controlled. We're saying no to nothing living like my Jack Russell Terrier that's just 800 miles an hour that you just need to almost grab just to say, let's spend some time together. Circus animal. <laughs> Man, we're running 85, 90 all the time. And to live self-controlled says that we say no to some things. And then he says we are to be sober-minded. There's two other places where this word in the Greek is used. And they're used in the two accounts where Jesus heals the man who is possessed by demons. He was possessed by a legion of demons. After he's healed of that, this is what it says, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That's the phrase. That's sober-minded. In his right mind, and they were afraid. Peter is charging believers with being self-controlled and being in their right minds, sitting at the feet of Jesus, engaged in what really matters, like you just had legion ripped out of you. And now you can focus on what really matters. And then he says these things, self-controlled and sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers, because the end of all things is at hand. Do you all realize that the next step in redemptive history is Christ's return? That's why it's at hand. That's why we're right on the cusp of eternity. So do our prayers reflect that? Do the content of our prayers reflect an urgency in that? I've wrestled with what to share at the end of this sermon, and I think I'll just share my heart. I know this is a little bit different sermon. Not a lot of visuals, not a lot of illustrations, just unpacking the Word. 
And I want to share with you, this is, I guess, a testimony at the end of the sermon, that I have a troubled heart right now. So this sermon may be more for me than it is for you. <laughs> you may have just been a witness to it if nobody else has a troubled heart. I have a troubled heart right now, along with uh, the elders we met this week and were sharing, kind of swapping notes and comparing our thoughts. And I'll say, for my sake, I have a troubled heart because I confess that I've been troubled over you. been troubled over this church. Troubled over what seems like sort of a slow disengagement. Sort of a distractedness. And in some cases, just a pure silent disobedience and defiance. Mm. I'm not going to do what you've preached. And I'm not going to do what you've charged me with. We figured that maybe it's the economy... Or maybe it's our work schedules or maybe it's our summer plans. This could be a seasonal thing. And it could be exacerbated by the reality that people are fighting, scrapping for money right now. Trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And businesses are holding the carrot of overtime over everybody's heads. And some people are saying, gimme. And then in other cases, they're saying, you do this for free or you're canned. So maybe that combines with a seasonal reality that's taking place in some of the kids' classrooms right now. Teachers, you know what I'm talking about. We just have to go on like a few week long, however many, however many days left of school, field trip just to survive. Maybe we all need to go on a corporate field trip just to survive. But the reality is, as a church, school doesn't end. God has got to be Lord of the summer just like he's Lord of the spring and the fall and the winter. And if there's a spiritual distractedness going on, then man, we need to shoot straight and we need to call each other out on that. The things, the indicators that I have, really, one of them is my inbox. I, uh, when I'm preaching week to week, there's sort of a conversation that takes place. And there are times where it's been very aggressive Times where shepherds are sending me emails or I know they're talking with other, other elders and saying, hey, what about this? What about that? What about this? How does this work? How can I communicate this to my families? And it's just sort of crickets right now. It's not as a rule because there's some people that are dialoguing, giving feedback. But really, I'll tell you, strangely enough, it's people that are new to Crosspoint. The people that have been walking with Crosspoint for a period of time, it's crickets. And me and the other elders are saying, Hello. We're still on the journey. <laughs> the lion is still prowling around, roaring, and he wants to eat you. And he would love to eat your wife and kids. And we're seeing overtime, and we're seeing work that's just drawing people away. And I'm wondering, is anybody even listening to the sermons when they're gone? We're entering into a weird season of travel and summer plans, and we've got our own. What I wanted to do this morning is ping is anybody listening? So I'm pinging the people who haven't been here for weeks. I'm pinging them right now and saying, send me an email as you listen to this online or on a CD and just say, I'm listening. I just want to know who's listening. And it's not to affirm me, trust me. Call me a dirty name, but let me, let me know you're listening. Shoot holes in what you've heard. Something. It's sort of like the bad emailer. 
You know what I'm talking about? When you send an email, you know that guy. You send an email to him, and they don't respond. And you think, man, has that email gone where odd socks go? Am I just in their spam filter? And then you see him a week later. He's like, hey, did you get that email? Yeah, man, I got it. Well, why didn't you respond? I sent Sutton a text earlier this week saying, hey, man, I'm looking for my running clothes. I left them at your parents' house, sent it to them, a long one. And I saw him this morning. I'm like, hey, man, did you get my text? Oh, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I've already talked to him. Yeah, I did. I mean, he's working on it. So I guess what I'm doing this morning in some ways is I'm saying, are we being bad emailers right now? Is there really something going on? Just respond and say, I got it. Man, shepherds, just say, I'm trying to engage this with my family because I know this matters with you. McGraws, Roberts, Suttons, Cardwells, Mayos, I know this matters. We're working on this with you. Just respond to that text and say, we're working on it. Or pray for us. Or something. I'm alive. Man, I'm telling you, I don't know if it's just a weird time of year, but I wonder, especially some of the things we've hit, like perichoresis, like Trinity, is perichoresis in your spam folder? And I don't mean just email, I mean spiritually. Is that reality about the triune God and how that translates to the people of God in your spam folder? Please say it's not. And if it is, go get it. Because that's what's going to minister to the laundry list of issues that I addressed at the beginning of this sermon. People come to me and say, man, I need some counsel on this. I'm like, man, were you listening last week? The Holy Spirit gave the goods for that. Were you listening? No, I was distracted. Or wasn't there. How often am I counseling people that haven't been here for weeks? And don't engage the sermons week by week. And I'm thinking, man, what? I got nothing else. It's the best we have as a church. God has a message for this people week by week. And we are to dine on it. And we are to talk about it. We are to massage it. Shepherds are to sit with their families and say, did you get that? And if I didn't, then let me call Ben. Say, what in the world did you mean? How can I get these cookies off the top shelf and give them to my kids? Because God's message for this people matters. I don't want to be part of a church that's just getting our church on week by week. See you next Sunday. <laughs> I don't want to be part of that church ever. And what I realize as I'm sharing these realities with you this morning are these thoughts. I don't know that they're realities. Is they may not be realities. Y'all may be on this journey and I just don't know it. So I'm saying answer the email. Answer the text. Let's talk. Let's dialogue. This is the stuff that matters in eternity. I'm begging you, let's engage each other on eternal issues. So needless to say, my heart is troubled because I want greatness. <laughs> so what I'm doing along with the other elders is we're praying. We're preaching and praying. We're devoting ourselves to prayer. We're actually, on Thursday mornings at 6.30, we're going to be meeting in this treehouse out here for a time where the elders are available to pray with y'all as a family, as a couple. 
as a kid, you know, it'd be a unique situation, a parent bringing a kid, but it's possible. A place where the elders are making themselves available a time, 6.30s on Thursday mornings, where we're going to pray for you, we're going to pray for ourselves, we're going to pray for greatness, we're going to pray for troubled hearts, and we're going to do all that in praying in Jesus' name. And meanwhile, working alongside that effort to make ourselves available in prayer is we want to continue exposing all that his name means, all that his name represents so that you can pray with precision. When you say in his name that you can know what that means. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, just pray that in some way that you can be honored um, and that your design can be on display as we shoot straight with each other and as we are people of sincerity. Lord, I pray if this is a season, that you can be Lord over this season as well. Lord, I pray that if it's just a time of of sort of frantic um, work schedules that you can teach us to say no to some things even if it means less money. Lord, I pray that you can just create in us a simplicity and a speed where we can engage you and come to you wholeheartedly undivided, undistracted. Lord, we recognize that the world is running at a different pace. And we recognize that everything in us will naturally gravitate to that pace. And Lord, we pray by the work of the Holy Spirit that you will devote us to prayer that you will devote us to great things for your glory and your namesake. Lord, that you will connect us with troubled hearts and that our righteous prayers will availeth much in those troubled hearts as we slow down and engage you rightly. Lord, I pray that you'll give us a high view of your name and the name of your Son. Lord, I pray that as we engage you, that we are engaging you in matters that are appropriate for your name. Lord, we are a weak, distracted, feeble people. And I'm the chief. In all those ways, I pray that you will arrest us with the gravity of this journey that we're on. Lord, we want to worship you in song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to close with a passage from Hosea this morning. Hosea is an interesting book. You know, I'm a little rusty on my dating, but I want to say it's about 700 years before Christ. 
around the time of Amos and uh, some of the minor prophets. Listen to these words God shares with his people, Israel. Let me also tell you the context for Hosea. Hosea was a prophet that God had actually go marry a prostitute. Bummer. Bummer of a job, right? Prophet. Everybody wants to go find a woman white as the pure as the driven snow. Go marry a prostitute because I want the nation of Israel that you will be a prophet too to see what they've done with me. It says these words. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Y'all stand and let me dismiss you. Let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we forgive others, everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Lord, we pray that you will give us a high view of what your name represents, that you will teach us to pray and engage you as we should, that we'll engage you with a troubled heart, with a suffering heart, with a sick heart, with a sinful, guilty heart, and every place in between. Lord, that we'll engage you rightly in the amazing name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will be students of that name, understanding what it means and what it represents, and that our prayers will be in keeping with the glory of that name. Lord, we pray for great things in and through this church, and we pray that they will all be for your glory. We pray for great things in and through these families for your glory. Pray for shepherds that are about an eternal work that matters. Lord, I pray that we are not a people that are just about sacrifice and ritual, but that we are a people hungry to know you better. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for our Jesus. And it's because of him and his finished work and in his amazing name that we pray. Amen. Thanks.